Stephen Miller, welcome, welcome, welcome to this show. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you, Maisie, for having me. <laughs> and we're here to talk about your book, The Exhibitionist, which has recently been published, which I gather you largely wrote during lockdown. And in fact, it was a great way of taking advantage of the lockdown. It was indeed. I mean, I, I knew that I had to write it because it's timed for our 150th last year. You know, we were founded as a, an academy in 1871, but I kept on putting it off and other things got in the way. So lockdown really gave me the opportunity to get on with it. Um, and it also, not only was I in lockdown, but the gallery's, you know, great team of volunteers that normally guide in the gallery were in lockdown. So they were eager to help by transcribing 19th century often illegible letters and minutes. And so it was very productive for me. <laughs> that was a wonderful opportunity. So look, it, it's not a book about the collection, is it? Although certainly the collection plays a role, but tell us about the sort of the rationale behind the book. Yeah, it's not a book about the collection because as you know, over the years, we've had many collection handbooks um, and I'm not a curator, I'm the gallery's archivist. It's not mainly about the buildings as well, because you could easily write an architectural volume about the wonderful suite of buildings at the gallery. It's a social history. And that's, I definitely wrote it to tell the tale of, you know, the characters that have made the gallery and particularly the stories where the gallery has intersected with the wider story of the city of Sydney. And so that's, that's how I framed it. That's the kind of thing that I'm interested in reading. You know, if I read an institutional history, which could be very, very dry and quite boring, and I've not read many institutional histories. So that's, you know, I thought if I wanted to read something, what would I want to read? And, and luckily the director gave me freedom to do that, which was really, really um, a treat. You were very trusted, I think. <laughs> you didn't have an editorial panel looking over your shoulder, did you? No, I didn't. I mean, it's really, you know, people said, oh, this must have been such a chore. And of course, writing and getting the images, there's always that element. But it really wasn't because I felt very supported by the director and by my boss, the, the deputy director. Um, and I felt very free to shape the book as I wanted to shape it, to use the images as I wanted. And um, so in that way, it was an absolute delight as a publication. I didn't have a committee breathing down my neck. So it was a pleasure to write. I really enjoyed it. So tell us a little bit about the structure of the book. Give us a bit of an overview. So it's basically historical and each chapter is written, you know, it's not uh, it's not the kind of book I know that readers won't pick up and read from cover to cover. Who does that with an institutional history? So each chapter is written self-contained in itself. So if you're, you know, I was thinking if you're interested in Edmund, there's the two chapters on Edmund. If you're interested in, you know, the early history. So that's how I wrote it. So it's basically chronological. And then there are a few chapters which are thematic. Um, often around uh, an object in the archive. So we have this wonderful visitor's book. We have this wonderful benefactor's book. And I use those objects as, as a way of talking about, you know, the, the wonderful range of 
strange and interesting visitors that the gallery has, the wonderful range of donors and the range of amazing things that we've been given over the years. So there's about three or four chapters that break out of the general historical narrative and, and talk about other issues. So, so that's how it's structured, basically. But you do also focus in on specific directors and yeah, and particular. I people. do absolutely. And the building actually does have quite a a prominent role in in the book. It does because the building often at the gallery we kind of we ask ourselves all the time what characterises the art gallery of New South Wales. With some of the other state galleries, it's quite clear NGV hasn't outstanding international old masters collection. Adelaide has a very kind of comprehensive and excellent colonial collection. And sometimes um, we find it difficult to, to say what actually is it about the Sydney Gallery that, that makes a distinctive culture. One thing is the place, you know, it's that wonderful setting um, in the Botanic Gardens, which the book shows is problematic at the same time. But, and it was very debated about, but the place is a very important thing. And the buildings, the very much loved buildings. And I think no matter who you speak to in any of those galleries, most people and most of my colleagues would say the, the actual physical presence of the art gallery of New South Wales is the finest in Australia. And we who work in the building, we love the buildings. Yes, and, yes. you know, we, lo we love the way that they've grown with the art. Those, those 19th century buildings were built for those huge salon paintings. And then in the 70s, you get the, you know, the easel paintings and they're built for Nolan and Drysdale and Boyd. Um, and now the new building is another chapter built for the art of the 21st century. And... That's a really wonderful thing about the building. So even though I didn't set out to write about the building, the building kept on pressing itself forward as, you know, I'm a major um, character in the story of the gallery. One thing I found very interesting was um, how history repeats itself. And in fact, you, you were talking about how there were difficulties in the 1880s in, in placing the the gallery in the domain and certainly there have been those same same difficulties in <laughs> developing Sydney modern but what you very cleverly do is you set up a dialogue between those two eras so tell us a little bit about the dialogue between Alfred <laughs> Stephen and Paul Keating. <laughs> I couldn't resist it really um, because one of the things I mean yeah that's right history repeats or history rhymes don't they say and I think people have forgotten the controversy about where the gallery was placed when it decided to move from right inside the Botanic Gardens and the arguments about what style of building it should be and who should be the architect. And, you know, I, I say in the book, and I really believe this is true, the current development, Sydney Modern, is really smooth compared to the, the foundational years. And, of course, you know, there have been critical voices because as there should be. And I, I put, we all know the famous um, uh, article that uh, Paul Keating wrote about the gallery. And, you know, I have great respect for Paul Keating for his vigorous opinions on cultural life. And so I put him in dialogue, some of the things from his article in dialogue with 
things that Sir Alfred Stephen wrote to the press in the 1880s, addressing very similar issues, just to, to show that, you know, these issues are not that contemporary. They have been debated about, and so they should be debated about, you know, it, the, the, the botanic gardens in the domain, really valuable parkland. I, as much as anybody, love that. The gallery is a, as now a, a very respected and important cultural institute in the life of Sydney. So uh, it's, it's heartening that they're debated about, you know, if, if they weren't, that would be something wrong, I would say. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, I was very amused to read it. <laughs> we, t we tend to think that the director is the god who, um, who runs an organisation and who sets the, sets the whole theme for the... But your book actually shows that while individual directors certainly make contributions, they're really just part of a wider tapestry. And so you look at the, the various different directors and you look at the contribution they make but you also i think you've been very brave in being not critical but pointing out that they they're not always right they haven't always made the right decisions they're not always the best personalities all those sorts of things are, come out in the book so do you want to talk a little bit about some of those directors yes i mean um i think all those things are true i mean they certainly are important for establishing a kind of culture at the gallery, but so too are the curatorial staff, the conservation staff. You know, I, I do tell, um, you know, the, the Art Gallery of New South Wales has been really a leader in some of the professions that we associate with the modern museum. And one of them is conservation. You know, the first uh, art conservation lab was established in Sydney maybe because of our semi-tropical climate, you know, we became an expert in mould and things like that. And so I tell all those stories. I also tell the stories of the attendants and people that we often forget. Many of those people have given their entire life to the gallery. You know, there's really, a, I have a sense at the gallery very often that it's not a job, it's a vocation, it's a life. And, you know, a lot of people are long serving um, and they really believe in the institution. So I've told a lot of the, when I can, those stories and, and the different personalities of the directors. I mean, we all know, we all have a sense of Edmund, you know, he was such a big personality. Um, he was so media savvy. He certainly cut a public profile. But I try to tell the other stories of how Missingham, of, of Gotham Man, somebody that's forgotten, and certainly the story of our first director, Eliezer Levi Montefiore, who's a person that I grew to love through the research, a really warm, generous human being. And, you know, he was, he's kind of a bit forgotten from the institutional history, up until Michael Brand, our current director, who's a very different personality from Edmund. And, uh, you know, not the kind of, I suppose his style is, his staff have slightly a bigger public profile under Michael Brand than, than in Edmund was really kind of the... Well, Edmund took the stage up, didn't he? He took the <laughs> stage, yeah. He was very big. There was not much room for anybody else. <laughs> Uh, Michael is not that, that kind of character at all. So he's quite happy. Even this book 
is an indication of that. Um, you know, even me speaking on the radio, he's quite happy for other people to represent the gallery and to discuss it. So all those things I think are really fascinating changes in the history, all underlined with this sense of uh, fundamentally an institution that people are passionate about and believe serves a really important public function that is not an icing on the cake function. That's so contrary to how government sometimes views the arts, you know. And I have a quote from one of the, some, you know, person saying, often the government believes the arts and the art gallery and cultural institution are after dinner mints. And it, but I tell the story of these people that believe the arts are absolutely fundamental to human flourishing and to coherent, cohesive, free and wonderful civic society. And they all certainly believe that. Well, there's a wonderful story which made me absolutely roar with laughter about the security attendance in about 1973, I think, when there was a special, very contemporary exhibition of some, some nude artists who were talking <laughs> to the public. But so tell us that story because I think it's so funny. <laughs> it's so 70s. It means that, it's, you know, when, when you read those things from the 70s, you think, oh, my goodness, we're so tame now. <laughs> so that was an artist that was a, by Tim Burns and it, it was an installation where two nude models were uh, inside a room and there was a closed circuit television on the outside of that room. And people came to the television and they saw this naked man and a woman and they thought, oh, is this a pre-recorded or are they offered a studio or something? And then the models would say, well, what are you looking at? Or you've got a nice <laughs> hat on. Um, and so, it, you know, they get this shock. Oh, these people are actually there. Um, and so it was this funny um, work, um, provocative but intelligent and humorous about the viewer and the artwork and what is the artwork, all those issues that artists were passionate about in the 70s. Um, and on the first Sunday, the male model decided he needed to go to the loo. And instead of donning the bathrobe that he was that he had in his cube, he just walked out and walked naked <laughs> through the gallery to the loo. Um, and one of the attendants who didn't like the work in the first place made a citizen's arrest. <laughs> so it's this, this wonderful story. Um, and, you know, you get the kind of... Um, I present the view of the gallery and the curator, but I've also been in contact with the artist. And the artist actually felt very betrayed by the gallery because they felt that the, ga the, the gallery had agreed to show this work, so they should stand behind the work. Um, so the model was arrested. It was Clive Evatt and Frank Waters from the Waters Gallery that raised the money for bail on a Sunday afternoon. And the artists felt that the gallery, the art gallery of New South Wales behaved badly um, in that story. And so I tell the point of view of the artists, you know, that they, they felt that they weren't supported. But it's a great story and it's this great moment of the 60s and 70s. And I loved researching that chapter. But there's one chapter that most probably was one of my favourite ones 
it was that because there were so many things I could have included because, you know, as you know, that the whole nature of art was being debated so vigorously at that time that it was really a moment of ferment and, um, you know, a wonderful boundaries too. And it was. And, you know, we opened the, our, our building in 72. So we were at that moment of that, that, you know, this was the first big exhibition that happened with the new building. So it, um, I just felt, oh, we're so conservative now compared to then. <laughs> You weren't afraid either of uh, looking at people and, and looking at, I'm sorry, I seem to be focusing here on many of the negative things, but they're somehow very amusing. But Bernard yeah. Smith, for instance, you uh, you obviously looked at him in a very, uh, let's see, realistic way about how he behaved in the gallery. Yeah, I mean, a great autocratically. man. <laughs> very autocratically. A great man, um, a very important contributor to, um, you know, art history and, and that world. But at the gallery, I mean, he was a young man. He was set out to, to cut a figure and create his career. Um, and he certainly did it. And he stepped on a lot of toes. Uh, a lot of people thought he was arrogant, that he was um, a bit manipulative. Um, I tell the story of the director's secretary, the, the wonderful Maud, who um, said he was stealing the press clippings, um, you know. So we, we subscribe to a press clipping service and we still have these wonderful volumes which are used all the time. And she said the young Bernard Smith was pilfering them to write his books. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so, so there's all that funny thing. And, of course, there's all the McCarthyism behind that because, you know, he was a, a member of the Communist Party um, our director was not, but had leftist leaning. So you had a lot of that tension with some of the trustees who thought these lefty artists and, and curators are going to push us in ways that we don't want to go. So, yeah, I, I just thought those stories from, from the 50s after the war and those brushes that Bernard Smith had with trustees and staff that were already here that those stories are too good not to include all those people are dead <laughs> and <laughs> I, I think actually you know I interviewed Bernard Smith many times so I think that Bernard Smith would most probably have a chuckle and um not disagree with those things as well <laughs> well it's always good to see a human side rather than some venerated sort of individual it's great to see that they actually have uh, toes of clay if not feet of clay there's always been that sort of battle between the trustees and the directors and the trustees and uh, so forth so you, you do deal deal with that but i was wondering one of the big changes that i could pick out was the role of artists, artists, directors, artists, curators, even artists, trustees. While you still have an artist like Ben Quilty on the board, or on the, on the trust, the role of the artist has changed significantly because the directors are no longer practicing artists, yes. but they have a, a wider, broader background in one way or another. Yes, well, that's definitely true. I mean, as you know, Edmund was the first director that wasn't a practicing artist. So up until then, every director had been a practising artist. Peter Laverty, who preceded him and who's been forgotten in many ways, stopped being director because he wanted to go back to his art. 
the Sydney Gallery has had a strong tradition more than any other gallery of um, really active artists on the boards. And that's been a, a great thing. And it's also had its problems. And I, I tell the story, of course, of Julian Ashton, who was one of the most active on the board and also one of the most controversial because there were all issues of conflict of interest and all of those things. Th those issues have been there and I suppose they're still there. With they're, There's still potential for those issues. But on the whole, I think that having those strong artists on the board and always having artists on the board, which we have, has really added to the gallery. And I think it's really... It really has strengthened the Australian collections in particular. And as you know, the Australian collections of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, that's one of the great strengths of this gallery. From the start, we were buying, you know, from artists, from living artists. And, you know, we, I quote letters from Robertson Street and saying, you know, you were the first public gallery to support my work. So that's a real tradition of the Sydney Gallery. And I suppose... They're becoming, as you say, even more important when, when um, current directors since Edmund and Michael are certainly art historians. Um, what's happened, I think, under Michael, one of the criticisms that I heard many times of Edmund, and I think it's unfair, but it was a perception, was that artists had less of a place in the life of the gallery under Edmund. They felt under how missing him and that that they were always heard that the gallery was their place above everything else, that they were the number one focus of the gallery. And you sometimes hear it said that that slipped under Edmund. I'm not sure if that's true, but certainly that's a perception. One of the real priorities of Michael Brand has been to make sure that everything the gallery does, artists are the focus. So events, even like things like the annual artist party, which he instituted, just to make sure that that artists realise that they are the, the first kind of community that the gallery services. You know, it's been under, under Michael and his deputy directors, Maud and uh, Sahanya prior to her, that's been um, a, a big change in culture as far as I can see. Well, you're obviously a great, you know, you, you love the gallery. It's, it's quite clear and it's quite clear in your book, but it's not, it's not a sycophantic book in any way. Um, it does show some of the warts and all, which is great to read. What sort of role do you think does your archive in the gallery play in the, in the life of the gallery? How important is it for a gallery to have an archive? At our gallery, it's very important and it's, it's highly regarded. Um, and I think uh, we're, this year, um, uh, in the second half of the year, we're opening a new library and archive. And the actual physical profile of that space, it speaks volumes. It shows um, how much the directors um, value this resource. So this will be a wonderful new space not only the finest art library in Australia, but really one of the most beautiful in the world. And I'm very familiar with art libraries throughout the world. So I encourage people to come in and visit when it's open and perhaps we can speak about the new space because it really will be a magical space. I love Basically, we're one of the few institutions that has, has it all. Um, and so that's a very important thing. And 
Partly that's the result of us being on site since the 1880s. As you know, the NGV, which um, is 10 years older than the Art Gallery of New South Wales, was in shared digs with the, with the library and the museum on Swanson Street. And it moved on to St Kilda Road in 1968. And a lot of their records went to the public records office or stayed at the state library. So their archive on site is actually from the 1960s. The, the National Gallery, of course, in Canberra, you know, 80s, basically records from the 80s. So the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the only other comparable institution is the Art Gallery of South Australia. We actually have all those historical records. We have them on site. We use them all the time. And so this book, it wouldn't have been possible without the archive. And, and I hope for everybody who reads it, they'll see the archive coming through. I try to quote from archival documents as much as I can. And it's so rich, it kind of forms how we look at the future. Um, and it's been, I've been at the gallery since Edmund. Um, Edmund loved the library and archive. I say that unequivocally. He loved it and he was 100% supportive. And that Michael Brand has followed up with that completely. So really we feel incredibly fortunate at the gallery because a lot of libraries and archives are under pressure, as you know, but we've never had to argue for the importance of our library and archive that, that has been always supported. It certainly makes the book a very rich one because there are a number of other voices there too. You know, you, you link them together beautifully. It's a wonderful book. It's very exciting. And I loved reading it and I enjoyed reading it too. Oh, <laughs> as I said, you. there's <laughs> lots of fun in there as well as... I'm so glad you had a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, I'd be reading something quite serious and then all of a sudden you'd drop in some little happening and I'd scream with laughter. <laughs> One question, why the title? Why, why did you call it The Exhibitionist? Doesn't it have a slightly pejorative meaning? It does, but we thought that's, um, you know, we put it out to staff um, and we had lots of funny, um, naughty things as well as you could imagine. <laughs> lots of naughty things. Uh, the person who um, um, manages our social media, our Instagram and all that, who's a whiz, said, why not this? And suddenly we thought, actually, it's perfect because it's got, um, you know, Sydney for the rest of Australia is kind of a bit of a showy. Sydney can be a bit vulgar, a bit naughty, all of those things. And we thought, actually, that captures a little bit of the city of, the city of Sydney and the quality of, you know, the city of Sydney. So immediately when Polly suggested it, everybody said, perfect. Stephen, I think it's a wonderful book and thank you so very much for talking to us about it. It's been a pleasure.